Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today's topic is a wonderful example of the purpose of History's Hook, making connections. We're going to discuss the life of Elias Polk. Elias Polk was born into slavery in North Carolina, but grew up in Tennessee. The majority of his life was spent serving James K. Polk, who is would eventually become the 11th president of the United States. Elias's life, however, spanned some 80 years through emancipation, where Elias became politically active in Tennessee. Unlike most of his African-American contemporaries, Elias Polk espoused the ideals of the Democratic Party, where he became an outspoken and sought-after speaker. His connection to the party that also represented former Confederates made him a controversial figure. Our discussion today will cover slavery, emancipation, and the interesting and often complex political issues of the Reconstruction period of American history. I'm joined in the studio today by both of my co-hosts, Joanne McClellan, who is the newly appointed Murray County historian, along with Dr. Barry Gidcombe, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. We also have Zachary Kinslow, who has authored several articles and a master's thesis on the life of Elias Polk. Zach, welcome to History's Hook. Uh, Thank you for having me. Zach, so Elias Polk, an enslaved man that has been mostly alluded to in many James K. Polk biographies, Mm -hmm. but without his own heretofore. So what got you interested in the life of Elias Polk? Well, that actually starts with uh, you, Tom. Uh, As you know, and I don't know if the listeners know or not, but we both worked at the Polk home uh, around the same time. And it was the exhibit you had done on Polk Place, the uh, Polk residence after the White House in Nashville, which is no longer standing. Uh, We were actually taking it apart, and I was uh, right in front of the the part about slavery at, at Polk Place. And I kind of asked you about them because I really didn't know much of anything. And you, you told me the names and the people that worked there. But uh, you said, unfortunately, not much is really known about uh, the people enslaved by James Polk, just because not many people have really researched into it. Uh, one name you did know, though, was Elias Polk. Um, you had mentioned that he had been a uh, wedding gift to James and Sarah in 1824 uh, from James's father. Uh, but after emancipation, had had some political career, but you didn't really know too much about that. So I, I got to looking into it. And the more I looked, the more I found, and the more interesting it got to me. Uh, so that, that's kind of where my interest in it started. And your research has uncovered a, a great deal, and his life is incredibly interesting. So he was born into slavery in North Carolina. Uh, what do we know, if anything, of his early life? Do we know who his parents were? Very little. Uh, so we know around the time of James Polk's maternal grandfather's death, um, James Knox, uh, the man who the president's named after, that James's mother, Jane, in North Carolina inherits uh, two enslaved women, a woman named Violet and a woman named Lucy. Um, And then a couple years later, two um, unnamed um, men are brought to the same property. Now, we know around that exact same time Elias is born. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't know uh, the exact identity of his parents, but it's a combination of of Violet or Lucy and and, and these two men. And about what, what year are we talking about? 1806, around that. Um, it's not exact for when he's born. They didn't really keep 
uh, records of enslaved births. Which uh, is an important year for the Pokes, 1806. That's the right. year that they migrate from North Carolina to Tennessee. Right. So you're surmising that Elias maybe was an infant at the time that they right, moved to right. Tennessee. Right, right. He's either born on uh, the North Carolina plantation in what is now Pineville, North Carolina, or he's kind of born on the way in. Um, I know this really because he's uh, he mentions some of his birth later on. Um, for marriage certificates and licenses and stuff like that. He's kind of got a right of a place of birth, and he put Charlotte, North Carolina, which at the time, Pineville was really the greater, greater Charlotte area. So James Polk kind of would have said the same thing, so the same area uh, that they both would have been born in. And uh, in an interview later in life, uh, Elias Polk mentions that uh, Sarah Polk was only three years older than him, uh, which would put him being born around 1806. At least that's what, that's what he believes. So he comes to Tennessee, uh, mm-hmm. Tennessee is very much the frontier at this point in time. Yeah. Um, do we know what what did he do? What was his? Do we know anything about his life prior to him? Yeah, we do with James um, Polk? A, a little bit. Yeah. So unfortunately, not much is known within Elias Polk's first eighteen years. We know he's born uh, around uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, around eighteen oh six. The family moves uh, themselves and everybody uh, west to Tennessee, and they settle in what is now that Neapolis area between Spring Hill. Uh, and Columbia in the the Polk Farm on, on U.S. Highway 31. And that's where Elias is really going to spend the first 18 years uh, of his life. Uh, and, and he's doing several things. Um, records have him listed as what they called a, a mill boy, uh, quote-unquote. Uh, basically, his job is to take um, grain to the, the grist mill to have it turned into to flour or cornmeal. So he's doing that. There's also a story coming around uh, 1814-ish, uh, when Andrew Jackson is on his way to, uh, he's on his way to New Orleans. He actually stops at the Polk Farm to visit uh, James's father Samuel, and it's said that uh, Elias and Andrew Jackson have this brief encounter where uh, Andrew Jackson has Elias watching his horse while he's visiting the family, and and at the end of it, he gives him a six and four pence for for the the little bit of work he did for him. There's not much really to that, I believe, and, and you'll find that a lot with Elias Polk, that there's a lot of these stories that turn out to be fabrication and don't really have much of a, a basis in reality when it comes to these things, but that really tells a lot about um, that idea of a relationship uh, that after the Civil War, uh, some uh, rewriting history in a way are starting to present how slavery and, 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 and white society really interacted. And so what we start to see is the story becomes less about Elias Polk because it's written in an obituary of him. That's the only place you really see it. So there's nothing from the time period that actually said it happened. It comes like 80 years later, uh, and it's in an obituary, and it's more about Andrew Jackson being uh, a quote-unquote benevolent guy uh, to Elias Polk, really, as opposed to telling something about Elias Polk. So it, it, it probably never happened in reality. Uh, and then most of what we do, do know about Elias Polk is he's really staying on uh, that farm in the Neapolis area for the first 18 years of his life. So there. I'd like to come back to the sort of the historiography. Yeah. And we'll come back to why some of these stories exist when there's really no basis in fact for them, what what they mean. So I, I'd yeah. like to come back to that. I also find it interesting, you said that he was listed as a, a quote, mill boy. It's exactly what James K. Polk said he did yeah. as well in his campaign biography in 1844. That's one of the very few... Uh, descriptions of Polk as a as a young man growing up on the frontier that he said his job was millboy. Right, so yeah. I, I find that fascinating that they both sort of make the, the yeah, claim of Yeah, and it could job. be more to that in reality. Um, and I'm sure it's something we'll talk about uh, later in the, in the program, that Elias started once he, after emancipation, tried to tie his and James Polk's histories closer together. 
Um, so Elias is the one who's referring to himself uh, as as the mill boy. And so he could have been doing that. In fact, that's probably something he, he was doing. Um, but he also could have been trying to tie his and James Polk's history together um, because, I mean, they would have been on the same property around the same time. Of course, Elias would have been considerably younger, about 10 years younger than, than James Polk. So uh, maybe once James Polk went to college, Elias took over. But um, I'm, I'm, that's just going on their words, but there could be something more into that. So Elias is an enslaved person yeah. of Samuel Polk at this right. point in time. Right. But there's a point at which he goes to the James K. Polk household. Tell us right. that story. Uh, so James and Sarah Polk are married uh, New Year's Day, 1824. And once they're living in Columbia now, they're living in a cottage just down the street from the Polk home. Um, it's said that one day there was a knock on the door, and when they answered it, uh, Elias was there. Uh, the quote is that he said, old master told me to come here. Um, he was more or less a wedding gift from James's parents uh, to the newlywed couple. Uh, he was part of a, a set, I guess is the word. I really don't want, I'm not comfortable using it, but that's, that's how they would have viewed it. Um, it was a, uh, a mule, a water cart, a water barrel, and the driver, Elias, was the entirety of the gift. Um, and he would have been, you know, in charge with bringing water to and from the house. Uh, but James Polk put him to work pretty quickly as a valet and, and personal body servant. Uh, as he's beginning his political career. There is a book called uh, Constructing Townscapes mm-hmm. that speaks to the importance of the water yeah. source in a town. Right. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Right. So this uh, hauling water actually would have given Elias Polk a, a different opportunity than, than other enslaved people could have had. Uh, and so I'm familiar with that same, same book you talked about, Constructing Townscapes. Um, and, and what it does is Elias Polk, and the other enslaved people charged with hauling water uh, would have all kind of went at the same time to get it. And therefore, for a brief moment in the day, they're outside of white society in a way. They're outside of uh, the view of uh, what white men and women are listening to them saying. And it becomes a place for them to gather, for them to discuss news of the day, to talk about what's going on in their lives. Uh, And so in a way, Elias has a little bit of autonomy and able to do this in a way that other enslaved people really don't have. Um, just simply with the task he, he's charged with doing. And he kind of makes that in himself. It's not the idea that, hey, uh, I'm going to have Elias uh, haul the water because he can do these things. No, it's kind of we need water at the house, and Elias is going to take advantage of that opportunity, uh, as many enslaved people did at the time. You mentioned that his roles uh, changed or evolved over time, and he became James K. Polk's <coughs> valet. Can can you describe what that means? What is, a, what is the role of a valet? Uh, so a valet drives the carriage that James Polk would have been in. Um, he's going to kind of be with James Polk uh, quite a bit, uh, act as a body servant in a way, I guess is a, is a good term to use, uh, help James Polk get dressed if he needs it. Uh, just kind of a really a jack-of-all-trades when we uh, look at what, what that term kind of goes into. And he this is 1824, mm-hmm. which, if I remember correctly, is the year that Polk is elected to Congress as well. So he's going to begin his travels to Washington, D.C., does Elias accompany him? Yes. Um, in fact, Elias would later claim that he uh, uh, had met every president from John Quincy Adams to uh, Grover Cleveland. And then this would have been a time where he would have met many of them. They probably wouldn't have paid him much attention. He, he was an enslaved man to a congressman that would have just been kind of standing there. So he's he's in the room where it happens, but he's, he's not part of the conversation. Uh, so, so, yeah, Elias Polk is traveling back and forth between D.C. and, and Columbia. Uh, in a way, with, with James Polk as he begins his political career. Is there any indication in existing papers that describes the relationship between 
James K. Polk and Elias? Did Polk ever write about Elias? Um, unfortunately not. So prior to his emancipation, what we really see regarding Elias Polk is really told in passing. Uh, James and Sarah Polk and, and several people really do write about Elias, uh, but it's kind of in context of another conversation. There's nothing that says, here's what Elias is doing, here's what we need him to do, he, he's doing all these different things. But we, through that, we can understand some of the relationship between them. Uh, there's a story that comes in December of 1830. Uh, Elias Polk is actually here in Columbia, uh, and James Polk is in D.C. as a congressman, and an ox has died on one of Polk's properties. And James Polk's brother-in-law, James Walker, who, when uh, James Polk is out of town, is the one in charge of the slaveholdings here in Murray County, uh, writes him a letter and says, hey, an ox has died. There's a debate going on in the House right now is what we should do. Uh, and Walker says that he believes that another ox um, should just be borrowed uh, from Franklin Polk, a, a brother of James's, in exchange for Elias uh, helping pull corn. Uh, but Elias gets in on the debate and believes that one should just be bought, that there should be another ox just brought in. Um, we don't really know the extent of that. Um, we know that Polk ended up siding with Walker and just having Elias pull corn in exchange for renting the ox from Franklin. Uh, but uh, it does reveal a little bit of that, that relationship there, that Elias Polk is able to uh, speak out on certain issues, which people think might be uncommon, but in reality it, it's not. Um, that enslaved people would voice opinion, would speak their mind at times, um, though they got to remember who they're speaking to, they got to remember uh, the context of which that, that relationship does exist. Uh, they're not uh, free just because Elias is saying, uh, speaking his mind doesn't mean his, his, his opinion has as much weight as Walker's, uh, the, the man in charge of the slaveholding. So, so we do see that relationship there. If Elias is accompanying James to Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., I believe Polk often went by different routes to yeah. get there, uh, sometimes going through northern states. Right. Is there any indication that Elias may have thought about <clears throat> escaping to freedom during any of those trips? Um, so, yeah, there's actually a couple stories with that that don't really hold much water, uh, don't, don't really have much weight to them. There's a story, uh, there's a couple stories, and they come really around the time of when James Polk is, is president because they do kind of travel through some northern states on the way to Washington, D.C. once James Polk has become president. Um, there's a story uh, that... Uh, begins in a book called Young Hickory. Uh, I believe it's Martha McBride Morell who wrote it many, many, many years ago. Uh, and, and Jesse Holland in his book The Invisibles kind of uh, retells the story. Um, and basically the Polks are on their way to Washington, D.C. They're on the Ohio River, and they actually stop in Ohio uh, on a steamboat uh, named China. And while they're there, Elias is in a different part of the boat, and a group of abolitionists get on the boat and declare that they're freeing all of James Polk's uh, enslaved people on the boat. And James Polk basically tells these people, hey, if they'll go with you, then let them go. And they go to Elias and tell him, we're freeing you, and Elias tells them, no, I'm just going to stay. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't leave. Uh, of course, we find out that the it's another problem that, like I said, comes with Elias Polk, that there's a lot of these fictionalized stories, uh, that what happens is, this story never happened. Uh, it's it's young hickory is fiction. It, it's up front and in, in, in the book and what it is that it's fiction. And so the book is fictitious. And the problem is is that uh, other authors unfortunately have at times used these things um, and, and told them as fact. So so there's not really any real evidence to show that Elias Polk chose to stay or or chose to run. We don't know that much about that time period though. 
But we know he remained. Did Elias ever marry or have children? Uh, so Elias Polk was actually married twice. Uh, the first time, uh, the both after um, emancipation, as, as everyone in this room knows now, that uh, enslaved people were not legally allowed to be married, but they did they did couple up and, and stay together uh, for as long as possible. Um, after emancipation, Elias Polk marries a woman named Harriet James. Uh, it was a very short-lived marriage. Uh, Harriet dies shortly after uh, the wedding. And then when Elias Polk is in his uh, 70s, uh, around 1882, uh, he marries a woman named Mary Mansfield, who actually they had met in Washington, D.C. While, while Elias Polk was, was doing some work at the Capitol building, she was working for the, in the coat room of the Treasury Department, and that's where they had met. Uh, they moved back to Nashville. They got married, and she was 40 years younger than he was. Um, and so I assume she was probably taking more care of him uh, than, 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 than be really being a wife. But um, Elias talks about the age difference at one point because when he's visiting President Cleveland at the White House, uh, Cleveland, as you know, marries a woman that's about 20, 40 years younger than he is, and Elias Polk says they're both young enough to marry young women. Uh, and so, so definitely, um, yeah, he was married twice, but he had never had children, uh, had, had no children whatsoever. I think this is a good time to take our first break. Let's take a moment and listen to our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the complex life of Elias Polk, an enslaved man uh, of James K. Polk, who went on to a political career following emancipation after the Civil War. We have in the studio with us Zachary Kinslow, who has written a number of articles on Elias Polk and is an expert on uh, Elias's complex life. Zach, P James K. Polk engaged widely in the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. He owned several plantations, first in West Tennessee, then in North Central Mississippi. The lives of the slaves varied greatly. How did Elias's life contrast to those living on the plantations? So we do see a difference there. So James Polk, to him at least, to, to, the, to J James Polk himself, uh, slavery tended to be more of an economic institution. And James Polk, we do see a confliction in how he views it. He says it's a necessary evil, but he wants to keep it around. It's making him money. Um, so there are very few domestic uh, house slaves, if you will, uh, in, in really James Polk's life. Uh, Elias tends to be one of, of the few. Uh, so James, uh, Elias is in the home uh, as opposed to away from James Polk. Now, James Polk is also an absentee uh, slaveholder, meaning he does not live on the same properties uh, of those that he enslaved. He is still very involved in their lives as he is uh, you know, dictating what's happening on these properties. The overseers that are there are writing to James Polk Basically, you know, here's what's happening. What's your decision on this? Uh, so James Polk is very still much involved in the lives of, of all the enslaved people, but um, he's not there. Um, so he, he, he has them, but he, he's not really putting a face to a name many times. Um, Elias Polk is different in that way. Elias Polk is closer in proximity to the Polk family than others. Um, we don't have a record of Elias Polk ever really facing punishment. We don't know what that, you know, that, that situation is there. Uh, we do know that he would have experienced the punishment of others. Elias Polk did visit uh, a couple of these plantations a couple times. Uh, just because he's working in the house does not mean he is away from uh, field work. Uh, there's a, um, a story in the 1830s where an enslaved man uh, named Wally, uh, uh, a pot of boiling water had overturned on him uh, and, and injured him pretty bad on the West Tennessee property near Somerville uh, today uh, in Fayette County, I believe. 
and um, Elias is the one who's sent to West Tennessee to to pick cotton. Um, and once the crop had been brought in, Elias comes back to Columbia. Um, so Elias is able to experience a wide variety of what slavery is, both working in the field and working in the house. We know that when he is in Columbia, he's tending garden, uh, because a letter between James and Sarah talks about how they need Elias, uh, Elias to plant clover uh, before you know the, the crop comes in, you know, uh, kind of replenish the soil and protect it in a way. Um, and he's doing that in Columbia. So Elias Polk's experiences in slavery um, tends to be a bit different in the fact that he has such a wide view uh, of the work of enslaved people. Uh, but he also gets to work um, closer to the Polk family, which gives him a bit of cover in a way, but it also means he's more closely watched uh, than other uh, enslaved people would be in the field. Um, and we do see enslaved people talk about that, how, how working in the house is different than the field. And, and in the field, although you're, you're doing more strenuous labor, that once that labor is done for the day, you're kind of outside of the view of, uh, of white society, while Elias in the house is, is on watch 24-7 and under the constant view um, of white society. Uh, Zach, you mentioned that uh, there are times that Elias is rented out right. to others to do work for others, right. and I guess Polk reaps the economic benefit mm -hmm. of that. Right. Um, so we do see... As, as time goes towards the Civil War, uh, slavery itself is, is changing in the United States. Um, some today would argue that it's dying out. I don't really buy that. The, the whole institution is changing. It's opening up really to a lower class through the idea of, of renting enslaved people. Um, basically, what you would do is if you needed labor or needed someone to work for you, you could go to a slaveholder and say, hey, I want a contract for an enslaved person, and we can work out a price for and how long they would be. Usually it was a yearly contract. Um, with Elias Polk, we see it a bit shorter because he's, he's back and forth between people. Um, so slavery is opening up to a lower class here. So it is, it's expanding, really, uh, by 1860 as it's growing out. It's just changing in a way that we don't typically think of. Uh, we do know that Elias Polk is, is, is rented out at times by James. Typically, we see that while James is president of the United States more than anything else. We know that James, uh, Elias is rented to a uh, James Houston Thomas uh, who was at one time a law partner of James Polk, living here in Murray County. And uh, I believe it's 1846. When, when is Thomas elected to Congress? Do you know? Uh, right right at the time of Polk's presidency. Yeah, yeah so, so, so around 40, 40, 45, 46. Yeah, okay, so around that time, uh, Thomas gets elected to Congress, and he goes to Washington, D.C., and he writes James Polk this letter about Elias and says, hey, I've been elected to Congress representing what was then the 6th District, and I'm going to uh, be transferring Elias's contract over to a Mr. Matthews at the Nelson's House Hotel, uh, which was down um, here in Columbia. Uh, and the contract was worth $80. Now, Elias doesn't get any of the money. He gets, he gets none of that. He does all the labor with, with none of the money from the contract. All that money goes to uh, James Polk, uh, the, the quote-unquote owner uh, of Elias Polk. Um, so so it, was, it was common uh, for slave rentals to have an Elias Polk was part of that. So when did he become politically active? So we see him become politically active pretty immediately following the Civil War. Um, we see 1866, he starts making speeches. He starts getting involved in uh, an oratory career. Um, in fact, I've got a quote here, if you'll let me read it, uh, from a speech he says in 1867, and it kind of reveals a bit about what um, you know he, he, he's pushing for after uh, emancipation. Uh, in 1867, uh, Elias Polk speaking in uh, Davidson County, Tennessee. 
uh, near Nashville. Uh, he says, My heart beats with alarm when I contemplate the dangers of the country. What were these dangers? They were enslaving white people and driving them from the ballot box. They, uh, Republicans, gave us, the colored people, the ballot. What was it for? It was to keep power. What did they enfranchise us for? They made us tools, tools to be used by them. I am for peace and harmony, and in my judgment, there will always be confusion and strife while part of the people are disfranchised. I am for universal suffrage. Uh, we must be free, for we cannot live in peace any other way. Uh, and so that, that reveals a little bit about what he's fighting for. Um, and we, we can get into that. So, so Elias Polk is really fighting for, for that idea of universal suffrage um, in a way, but it's, it's, it's really abdicating for uh, the reenfranchisement of, of ex-Confederates following the Civil War, which, which becomes a pretty unique thing for an African-American individual to do. In any of his speeches, did he show any kind of sympathy for what the former slaves were going through? Uh, yeah, in a way. Um, so Elias Polk, he never really takes on the spirit of what ex-Confederates are doing after the Civil War. Yeah, he becomes a Democrat. Um, yes, he abdicates for uh, the reenfranchisement of uh, ex-Confederates. But, but as, as you see what I just read, he, he mentions universal suffrage, um, disfranchising one part of society um, is not right. And if you can disfranchise as white people, why, why, you, could, you could easily make the same claim for African-Americans. Um, you know, if this can happen to them, then it's going to happen to us again. So we have to make sure that everyone can vote and all these things. Um, he, he does push uh, for really collective bargaining when it comes to uh, African-American rights. Um, so yeah, he, he is very concerned with uh, what's going on in the African-American community. He does sympathize with them. He just takes a different route in pushing for um, those rights. I guess I don't understand that route. Uh, it can be confusing, yeah. It is very confusing because 1857, <coughs> we had Dred Scott, right. which basically said that African-Americans would never be citizens. Right. And then we had the Civil War mm -hmm. and then Reconstruction. And the Southern Democrats were basically trying to not allow the African-Americans to have <coughs> some of the privileges. They, mm -hmm. during Reconstruction, they uh, didn't want them educated. They right. didn't think that slaves needed to be educated to do, uh, African-Americans needed to be educated to do slave chores. They mm -hmm. burned down the schools. They threatened the teachers. Right. There was just nothing that the Southern Democrats, if you will, were doing that would advance the African-Americans. Right, right. So I still struggle with some of his ideas. So we have to understand the situation that Elias Polk is living in once he, he gains freedom. Um, he is, at the time, around 60 years old. He is an African-American living in the South. Uh, and he's illiterate. Uh, 1880 census says he cannot read nor write. And we got to look at the options that he has. Um, now, Republicans are arguing that he's free. He can work for a labor contract. He can get paid for the work he'd always done. But who's going to hire a 60-year-old man uh, to work in the field? So it, it's about what he can benefit from. It's about his survival. He does not aspire to martyrdom. He, he, he sees, hey, um, the status quo really doesn't change. My life before 1865 looks very similar to my life after 1865 and what can I do to live in this time based on what what really is going to affect me yeah I understand that but he's also a victim of um, one of the reasons why African-Americans of the former mm -hmm. slaves wanted to learn to read and write yeah he's basically living 
based on what he's been told. Right, right. Uh, and just because he could neither read nor write doesn't mean he's not abdicating for it. Uh, he quickly became a member of the Tennessee Colored Agriculture Mechanical Association. Yeah, yeah I understand that he may be advocating for it, yeah. but he is living a life based on what he's being told, yes. not what he is reading and understanding for himself. Right, true. That is that is very true. Yeah, he, he neither read nor write, so he kind of has to be told. Um, basically, the information that he's going to then take uh, with him. So how did he prepare his speeches? It would have been all really impromptu. Uh, would have had to have been. I mean, he based have had on what he's head. been told. Based on what he's been told, but he's able to take that information and kind of use it to manipulate the system in which he lives. Um, in a way, we really look at what he's saying. He's abdicating for um, economic individualism, um, much as Booker T. Washington would do 30 years later. Um, you know, Washington says in 1895, uh, the opportunity to earn a dollar in a factory just now is worth infinitely more than the opportunity to spend a dollar in an opera house. Um, he believed, Booker T. Washington in 1895, believed that if you could be economically independent, um, then social and political equality would, would eventually follow. We know today that wouldn't happen. That's why we had to have the uh, civil rights movement in the 1960s. Um, in the 1860s, the promise of the future for African Americans is pretty high, but, but the reality of it is, is really bleak. And so, it, like I said, it's, it's more about Elias Polk surviving for himself in this, in this world. Yeah, but he's living in that reality. He's living yes, in sure. the South. He's yes. living in that reality, and he is seeing what is going on around yeah. him, yes. except for the time when he is in D.C., and mm -hmm. then he is really living a life of luxury. In, in a way, yeah. 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 Um, he, he does really push, like I said, the voting thing is really big for him uh, more than anything else. Economic independence um, as well. Like I said, he, he helps fund and set up vocational schools mm -hmm. uh, for African Americans in the state of Tennessee through the Tennessee Colored Agricultural Mechanical Association, which raised a lot of money, mm -hmm. thousands of dollars in the 1860s and 70s uh, right. to build vocational training programs for uh, African Americans yeah. in and around the Middle Tennessee area. Um, so like I said, he is involved with it, but when it comes down to it, it, it can almost seem selfish in a way uh, that what he's doing, you know, he, he seems to really care more about his life, his experiences. Um, like I said, that doesn't mean what he's doing is right, uh, but it doesn't make it more understandable when we think about the situations in which he's faced. Now, as far as becoming a, a Democrat uh, in the 1860s and 70s for an African-American, that, that's what makes him a little bit more unique. Uh, and what he's really kind of looking at from, from what I understand from the records is it, it's a kind of an idea of, of paternalism in a way that, that what we start seeing prior to 1865 is, is slaveholders are saying, you know, I'm, you can't take care of yourself. I've got to take care of you. I've got to be the one to, to do these things. And Elias kind of after the Civil War is, is really making them hold up what they were saying. You can't just drop me off. You know, you promised these things under slavery, so now you're going to be the one to pay me. I may have to say and do what you still want me to, but I'm, you're going to pay me to do it now. But that, that is still a way of controlling. I will oh, take care yeah. of you the way I want you to be cared oh, for. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it is still a, a, a control. It is, it is a form of control. In fact, Elias would later go on to say that um, African Americans should leave the white man politics alone if they're going to be truly free. And so, so we do understand that's it's a bit... Uh, touchy at times. We're going to continue this interesting conversation in just a moment. We're going to take another break. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the complex life of Elias Polk. Um, Zach, I want to take a step back if we can and talk about uh, Elias's relationship with James K. Polk while he was president of the United States. So Elias had spent the good portion of his life in close proximity to James K. Polk, living with him. But as president, Elias didn't go to Washington, or if he did, it was more brief. Why, why is that? There could be a couple of reasons for that. Like I said, it's it's a lot to James Polk as far as, as, as slavery is concerned, more about his economic benefit than, than really anything else. Uh, we do know that while James Polk is in the White House, uh, he has two enslaved people there that really stay throughout the entirety of the administration. Uh, Henry Carter Jr., uh, who was a former field hand, uh, brought into the White House, and then uh, an enslaved woman named uh, Mariah who worked as a, a maid for Sarah Polk. Um, we do know that Henry Carter Jr. and Mariah would have a relationship uh, themselves. Um, they would live together at Polk Place once they had returned home from Washington, D.C. Um, and, and during the break, actually, uh, Barry Gidcom over here was, was make, uh, making a pretty good point. Um, and if you could just kind of make that again for us, that way we could uh, all hear it. Well, I was just speculating that that Elias had been with Polk for so long and, and had been there by his side. And Elias is obviously pretty articulate and well-spoken, maybe outspoken. And maybe for Polk as president, it was not comfortable for him to have someone in the White House with him that others in the North could point to and say, uh, yes, why would you enslave a, a person like this? And maybe for, you know, the, the Southern argument was, uh, for so long, was that the African Americans could not support themselves, could not make it on their own. And perhaps Elias is, uh, is an example that they can and so perhaps that's the reason Polk brought a field hand with him to Washington rather than Elias. It's an interesting thought, uh, and we know uh, before the break we spoke about Elias and his public speaking career later, despite the fact that he could neither read nor write, he was an articulate speaker. So uh, that's an interesting hypothesis. Let's talk about the Civil War. Uh, the war changes Nashville quickly. Nashville becomes... Uh, Union occupied by 1862, uh, a large number of formerly enslaved people are heading north or into the Union lines. What does Elias do? So Elias is is living at Polk Place still uh, in Nashville, which is right downtown. And we don't really know a lot about Elias Polk during the Civil War. Um, there's a couple stories. In fact, in the Memorials of Sarah Childress, which was published in 1892, uh, Anson and Fanny Nelson wrote it uh, through interviews they had done with Sarah Polk. There's a story during the Civil War that when uh, Union General Don Buell uh, came to Polk Place, uh, he came with an entourage, and as they were leaving, they saw Elias standing um, next to the porch outside and asked him what he thought of everything. And his response was, uh, reportedly, I am for the rights of, this, of the uh, South and the territories. Uh, so basically they laugh at him. Uh, they use a racial slur saying we don't need to ask another one of these to uh, their opinion of the war. Um, once again, it's one of those stories that, that we don't, I don't really believe happened. Um, it would be Sarah Polk recalling a story 30 years after it happened, and 
she's not even supposed to be there in the story, and half the conversation takes place as the union is down the road. Uh, so how would she know these things? Um, it becomes almost a, a a fictitious thing to talk about how benevolent the Polks were, uh, that Elias would choose to stay, that Elias Polk became complicit in his slavery. And it really, in a way, also puts the emphasis of slavery on the enslaved as opposed to those enslaving them, that if Elias chooses to stay, then slavery's not that bad or... Um, you know, it's more beneficial to the enslaved to stay. So, so we do. I believe it never happened, as far as that's concerned. Now, what we do know, Elias Polk is during the, doing during the Civil War. He's living at Polk Place. Um, he's still enslaved to Sarah Polk. When Andrew Johnson became military governor of Tennessee, uh, Elias Polk was chosen uh, as an enslaved individual to be one of the men who greeted him at the train station and escorted him to the capital to be the military governor of the state. Uh, and you might think, why? Why is an enslaved man doing this? Why are they giving him the opportunity? Well, it speaks more to have Elias Polk there than, than just being there. Um, James uh, Elias was close to James Polk, so he becomes representative of that planner class, which Andrew uh, Johnson knowingly hated. Um, he is an enslaved person, um, and so he the South could be showing uh, Unionist Andrew Johnson, hey, you know, we are able to provide African-Americans an opportunity through slavery that they wouldn't have otherwise. Elias, as a freeman, couldn't be here, so we're giving him this opportunity. Obviously, we're good at, good at this. Um, and so it, it's more of a message sending to the military unionist governor of, an, of a formerly Confederate state um, than anything else. That it's not out of kindness or the fact that they like Elias enough to do this, the fact that he, is, he represents more to these people uh, than, than simply who he is. One of the ideas that you touch on in your thesis is the idea of deference. Mm -hmm. And I, can you explain that to us a little bit in so, terms of how, deference, how Elias used this idea of deference to his advantage? Right. So deference can be a complex issue when we talk about it. It's, it's deferring to others to get something. Um, and, and slavery really is built on that idea of deference. You know, Elias Polk, um, as Joanne mentioned earlier, is controlled by these people. He doesn't get a say for himself really in his life um, and it seems that way before and after the Civil War but what we can really understand is that what he's doing is he's playing into uh, the system in order to subvert uh, the system um, if anyone is familiar with uh, the book Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison um, in it the grandfather um, who is a lot like Elias Polk in the book um, tells his grandson to live with your head in the lion's mouth, overcome them with yeses, undermine them with grins, agree them to death and destruction, let them swallow you till they vomit or bust wide open. Uh, so basically, do what you got to do, say what you got to say, uh, because they're going to control it anyway. You can't get out of that. The culture, the system is designed to oppress and be against you. And if you fight it, you're going to be faced with violence. You're going to be faced with threats, possible death even. Um, so don't fight it play into it so much that they end up doing what you want in a way, um, which is something that we typically don't think of. By listening to them so much that they are then doing what you want um, can be kind of hard to get your mind around. But in a sense, by deferring to a system that's sort of stacked against you to begin with, he's using that. He's sort of working the system to his benefit. Elias Polk's view on black conservatism of working the system, even benefiting from the system while remaining in the, quote, accepted condition of African-Americans was a precursor to some of the same ideals that Booker T. Washington 
stands out for nationally, you know, a few years later. How are the views of the two connected? Do you see a connection between the two of them? Right. So it's really through the ideas. We have to look at the practicality that, that they're faced with. Um, after the Civil War. Of course, Washington's doing it 30 years after Elias Polk is doing it. Neither one came up with this ideology, um, but they're both adhering to it. It centers on the idea of um, African-American economic independence, uh, rugged individualism as far as economics is concerned, but a collective identity in politics. Um, both Washington and Elias Polk um, will push for um, workers' rights. They will push for the opportunity to earn money. Uh, they both set up vocational training schools. Um, but they both also say that social and political equality will come later. You have to focus on um, economic and betterment uh, before you really focus on with Elias Polk saying that you need to leave the white man's politics alone and um, Washington saying, you know, in his 1895 uh, speech, The Allegory of the Hand, that we uh, can be you know, like the hand. We must work together as one, but be as separate as the fingers, an abdication for Jim Crow in a way. Um, Elias Polk's kind of saying that, that you got to be separate from white society in order to become part of it eventually. Uh, like I said, we know those arguments wouldn't work, but for the time in which they're living, it seems more practical with the violence and the culture not changing. That Southern racial hierarchy doesn't go away after slavery does. Uh, and so they have to find a way, both being uh, Southerners, both being former slaves, um, to live in that society, to live in that culture that changed very little uh, after the Civil War. And to them, it seems more practical to go for this, basically appease the fears of white society in order to show them that, hey, African-Americans are just as good. Like I said, we know it wouldn't happen during their lifetimes, uh, which is why we have the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. Uh, but like I said, for the time, it's, it's not right, but it's understandable that we can figure it out. Zach, you make an, an interesting comment about uh, Elias and his actions, how he purported himself after the war. And you wrote, his actions after 1865 make us uncomfortable because we know what lays ahead in history. Elias did not. Yeah, very true. we got to remember, it's easy for us to look at Elias Polk and say, hey, what he's doing is wrong. Why is he doing that? It's not going to work. He doesn't get to look back at history and see the things we get to see. He doesn't get to make the connections that we get to make. Uh, simply, he's living it. And, and that's what I think we forget a lot of times is these people are living what we are studying. And so it's easy for us to, to look at Elias Polk and say, well, he's, he's you know, a sellout. He's doing wrong. Um, in a time, you know, he was called a sellout uh, by some people. Uh, that, that leads to my next question. Although he wasn't alone— he represents a demographic in the South. Uh, there were African-American Democrats running for office. Uh, there were those who absolutely disagreed with that viewpoint, many. One that you quote in your thesis is T. Morris Chester, the only African-American war correspondent during the Civil War, and he had this to say specifically about Elias. He wrote, quote, There is a black man from Tennessee who is now canvassing the state in the interest of the white man's party. It is hardly possible to conceive a greater crime or deeper ingratitude than to see a black man born whose back or that of his blood kin has felt the last of, of oppression of which the white man's party is the champion, who has heard the dying groans and shrieks of our brethren who have been murdered by slavery, 
who in his own person has suffered every indignity which slave laws and slave public sentiment inflicted, advising black men to vote their liberty away and by solemn act surrender their manhood. May this wretch, who renders the name Elias Polk, enjoy the contempt which his depravity merits. May he receive the ineffable brand of a traitor, so that all good men and women may scorn him whenever he appears. And it goes on. Harsh words. Right. By choosing to be a part of the Democratic Party in Tennessee, was Elias choosing security over liberty? Yes, yes, he was. Um, and we see that really a theme in America from time to time. I also mentioned in my thesis, I can kind of compare Elias's thinking during this time uh, to the United States uh, right after uh, the 9-11 attacks. You know, the Patriot Act, which took away some of that individual freedom that we have. We chose security over personal liberty at that time. And if we can understand that, then we can understand Elias Polk's thinking uh, after the Civil War. He is living in a state. He is um, living in a southern state. Uh, he is surrounded by people and a culture, not just the South, but the United States as a whole, that views him as a second-class citizen. And if he chooses to buck that system, if he chooses to stand against that system, he will face threat and violence. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan is very much alive during this time, and Elias Polk knows some of them. Governor John Calvin Brown, um, a member of the Klan who was um, you know, married to the niece of First Lady Sarah Polk. So Elias knows these people. He's able to work with them to get certain things out, but he is going to sacrifice um, personal liberty for personal security. Like I said, that, that's something that, that Americans do from time to time. So that doesn't make him unique, but it makes him practical. It makes him not a martyr, which he, he didn't aspire to be. And that's the thing we have to understand. His story is about real survival in a time and a place that, that's meant to oppress him as opposed to anything else. Did Elias ever run for office? Uh, he considered it at one point. In, eight, in the 1860s, he was uh, reported as being a conservative candidate for the Tennessee State Legislature mm -hmm. uh, in, I believe, 1867. Had he won that election, he would have been the first African-American elected to the Tennessee State Legislature. However, while um, the Southern Democrats could support what he was saying and like and would pay him to say these things, they weren't going to throw their weight behind the political uh, movement of Elias Polk. Uh, and so his entire political campaign amounted to a sentence in a paper announcing that he was thinking about it, uh, but nothing else. It would be Republican Samson Keeble uh, who would actually go on to be the first African-American elected to the Tennessee state legislature. And so what we do see there is Republicans would turn out and support uh, African-Americans while, while Democrats would support them uh, when it fit what they wanted to say, what their narrative was. What did Elias do to make ends meet? How did he make money? Uh, mostly through his speaking career. Mostly, mostly through his speaking career. Um, he also worked as a uh, porter at the Tennessee State Capitol uh, for the Senate. He was appointed to that position uh, in the 1870s. Uh, in the late 1870s, he was appointed by the clerk of the U.S. House of Representatives to be a laborer at the Capitol, uh, where he made around $62.30 a month, which was a pretty substantial amount of money for anyone to be making at the time, let alone a former enslaved person. Um, once he leaves Congress in 1881, and he does that because the Republicans have regained control of the House and they, they kick him out, uh, he comes back to Tennessee where he finds, hey, the Democrats have control of the state, and when they're in power, they don't need Elias Polk to come say these things anymore. And so they kind of drop him off. He becomes a hack driver, which is basically a 19th century taxi cab. Uh, he had been a valet for James Polk, so he's taken, once again, looking to his past and finding out what he's good at, what he can do. 
Um, and then he starts a little bit of a speaking career again. He goes back to Washington, D.C. in 1886, where he is with uh, Captain Samuel Donaldson. It's where he meets President Grover Cleveland in the White House. Uh, and he's informed that, hey, you're going to get your job back at the Capitol. The Democrats have retaken. You're going to get it back. Well, that later that night, uh, Elias Polk dies in D.C. Mm-hmm. He was 80 years old. He had pneumonia, and he suffered a hemorrhage of the lungs. What is Elias Polk's legacy? Uh, Elias Polk's legacy is, to me at least, like I said, it could be, it's up for interpretation. Like I said, I'm only one person that's written on him, so I'm sure other people could come to a different conclusion. Um, Elias Polk's legacy is about survival. It's about, um, it's about thriving in a society that is designed against you. It's about um, really just the basic human concern for living. And, and that's what Elias Polk does. Like I said, his, his decisions we can disagree with all day. I don't agree with the decisions he made, um, but he made them. He made them in a time that I'm not living in and faced with certain situations that I'm not going to have to experience. Um, and so Elias Polk really is a testament to survival more than anything else. We can disagree with him all day, but but it's about his survival and his choice to make uh, when it comes to that. Zach Kinslow, thank you for talking thank with you. us today. We appreciate it. I'm going to end with a quote from Ralph Ellison's 1952 novel, Invisible Man. He writes... I am an invisible man. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. That's it for us this week. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Marty Verhoff, our engineer, And my co-hosts, Dr. Barry Gidcombe and Joanne McClellan, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.